welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. On today's show, we are joined by Samir Kaji to talk about all things venture capital. Ben, when we hung up with Samir, he made an interesting analogy that in 2021, everybody was super excited to buy a Volvo and pay BMW prices. Now you could buy BMW prices. You could buy, (laughs) man, you get a good look at a butcher. (laughs) (laughs) Now you could buy BMWs at Volvo prices and nobody wants to do it. Such is the nature of human investing, eh? Yeah, in both the venture capital space and in the stock market, where yeah, I'm just going to take it easy, wait until the dust settles and see what happens instead of actually putting your money to work when things are down. So there are a bunch of platforms for advisors to connect private investments, whether it's real estate, private credit, whatever, with individual investors, family offices, wealth managers, that type of thing. And one of the areas that has been tricky to crack is venture capital for a few reasons. One, there is a mismatch maybe a liquidity mismatch in terms of like expectations. Institutional investors that have perpetual time horizons are used to dealing with illiquidity, whereas most individual investors have never done something like that. But I think even more so, and I'm kind of talking out of my butt here, but I think even more so is because getting access to funds that you want to get access to is not something that you can just do. Let me give an example. So I mentioned, but the endowment I used to work for was a billion dollars, not to brag. We had a small venture piece of that portfolio. We had to use fund of funds to get our venture allocation because the funds that we wanted to invest in would not take us at a billion dollars. You needed to be probably a minimum of like a $10 billion fund or have really, really awesome relationships because venture capital is the nature of the business is really relationship based. And we couldn't get access to any of them because we didn't have those relationships and we didn't have enough money. So companies like Allocate should definitely be disrupting that fund-to-fund model where on top of the traditional 2 and 20, the fund-to-fund manager can be charging, I don't know, whatever it is, 1%, half percent. usually, something like that. Okay. And what that does to returns on top, I can't imagine. So anyway, we think that Samir and his team are uniquely situated given their experience, given their proximity to actually have relationships with top investors and match the supply with demand. And so we invested in their Series A, which we'll link to in the show notes if you would like to read about it. So in the interest of full disclosure, there's that. This is like a Russian dollar of venture capital investing. We did a venture capital <laughs> investment in a venture capital firm who's investing venture capital in other venture capital firms. It's venture, <laughs> venture capital venture all the way down. Yeah. All right. So with that, here is our conversation with Samir. We are joined today by Samir Kaji. Samir is the CEO of his new company, Allocate. Samir, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. All right. Venture today looks a lot different than it did in the 90s. So, for example, when Amazon went public in 1997, it was only a three-year-old company and they needed to tap the public markets because that's where you went. If you needed money, you went to public markets. And they came public at a 400 
million dollar valuation. And basically, now the venture investors did very well, obviously, but all of the upside was created in the public markets. Eventually, that company reached a trillion dollar valuation. On the flip side, you have a company, and I just picked one randomly, Bird Scooter, okay? Bird Scooter, I don't know how long the company has been around, but they went public at a $2.3 billion valuation. So a lot of the value capture has shifted from public markets to private markets, and therefore, people want access to venture. We are going to come back to that in a little bit, but we're going to talk all about venture today. And I think a good place to start is with your background, because it's an interesting one. There's a lot to unpack in what you said. And the funny thing is when Amazon went public in 97, as you mentioned, it was three years after being founded, is when I essentially started my career in venture. So I graduated from a local school here in Silicon Valley. And my dad was a real estate guy. And my options were to go into the family business of real estate or take my opportunity of working in Silicon Valley and working with these technology companies that seemed to be going public in some cases, 18 months. And so in the late 90s, I joined Silicon Valley Bank lending to companies during the dot-com bubble. Thought it was the greatest thing. I was seeing companies go public left and right. We were doing really well because we would take equity positions in these companies. And then I went through the bust in those three really long years of becoming a distressed lender. Worked with companies for the first nine years of my career. Was lucky enough to work with companies like LinkedIn, when they did the first venture debt deal in 2003 or 2004, and then ultimately moved to the private funds group at SVB in 2008. So during the global financial crisis, spent a few years there and then started a group at a bank called First Republic in 2012, really focusing on this next generation of venture that we're seeing today. Spent nine years there and then ultimately led to where I am right now, which is running a company called Allocate that allows investors to participate in the private innovation economy, which, as you mentioned, is such a critical part of investing in technology companies. Samir, I'm just curious, having lived through both of them, how much crazier were things in the 90s than they were over the past couple of years? Or was it more similar than people think? The old saying is things aren't always the same, but history does rhyme. And what we saw in 98, 99, 2000 was a time of extreme euphoria a lot of liquidity pumped into a single sector, and people speculating, looking for really that quick turn. We saw that in 2021. And a lot of that was based on the central bank. It was based on the stimulus. You had trillions of dollars pumped into the system. And the behavior that we saw in 2021, parts of 2020, were not too much indifferent than what we saw in the late 90s. Now, The big difference, of course, is from a technology perspective, back in 99 and 2000, you had a lot of that risk taken by the public markets. But also, at that time, there was only 250 million people on the internet, mostly through dial-up modems. Today, there's 5 billion people that are connected every moment of the day. So technology is in a different place, but investor behavior tends to repeat itself. Well, we're seeing that today for sure. Who has historically been the beneficiaries of the LinkedIn's, the Ubers? Like, Who are the people that are actually getting the returns other than the venture capitalists? Who are their clients? Who are their investors? Historically, the client base for venture firms has almost solely been institutions, endowments, foundations, pension funds. And the reason is many of these institutions have teams of staff that can go find deals 
They can diligence these deals. They have the brand and purchasing power to be able to meet the minimums. An average minimum for a top flight VC firm could be 10 or $20 million. Hard for an individual investor to not only invest, but build a portfolio that is diversified across managers, across vintage years. And so up until maybe 2014, 15, over 90% of the capital put into venture firms was historically institutional capital. I used to work in that space, endowments and foundations and such, and you're right. And one of the other reasons is because they know a lot of those big institutions will pony up for the next fund because a lot of time you're fundraising before you even know how well your first or second or third fund does. They want to make sure that they have the capital. It makes sense. So what has changed in the past few years to allow more people to get access? What's going on to help democratize that? There's a couple of things that have happened. This goes back to around post the global financial crisis in 2010, 11, and 12. People quickly realized that the normal asset allocation is 60-40, 60% public equities and 40% fixed income just wasn't a viable strategy. And they looked at some of these institutions and said, if I can put money in the private markets and get access to really interesting firms, that's a great way not only to diversify, but to generate outlier returns. And there were companies like iCapital, Case, that came out in 2012, 13, 14, that allowed investors to be able to access these private funds. The private banks started to bring these offerings by aggregating capital from individuals. And so this world of democratizing alternative assets, it really started about 10 years ago. Venture was never a participant in that because venture was never big enough. Venture was a 30 to $40 billion a year business in terms of funds raising. And the vast majority of venture funds, to your point, could go to the institutionals, get repeat capital that was durable, and there was no need to access the retail markets. Now, what's changed is technology has become a bigger part of our lives. Investing in technology, the entire market has grown about 3x last year, about 120 billion plus was raised by funds. And so looking at that same finite group of institutional investors is simply not enough now. You have to find new sources of capital as a venture fund manager to diversify. That's why you see some of these bigger firms going to the JP Morgans, the Goldmans of the world, and increasingly looking at groups like ourselves, which provide them a distribution channel to retail capital. So it's really the growth of the private markets that has resulted in the necessity of these managers going after non-institutional capital. You mentioned outlier returns that have been historically available in venture. I guess the challenge is if you're not in the top quartile, then it doesn't make sense to play that game. And that has been a very difficult nut to crack. How has your experience in the industry given you access to bring some of the top flight venture funds to investors? It's interesting that you bring up the top quartile. I think that's been largely true over the last 40 or 50 years. I think maybe the last 10 years is a little bit different. In the last 10 years, we've seen first and second quartile do really well, but it's coincided with one of the longest bull runs that we've seen. So yes, I mean, the delta between top quartile and bottom quartile is about 25%. So top quartile VC, if you look back and do a 20-year, and this is based on data that's come out from Burge's Capital that looked at about 1,100 firms, and top quartile is 37%, bottom quartile is 12%, which if you're investing in venture capital and taking on the risk and the illiquidity, because your assets could be locked up for five, seven, 10 years, you really need to outperform the S&P 
by 700 to 1,000 points pretty consistently. And so venture has long been a relationship-oriented business, much more than any other business. So what's allowed us to get in is really that combination of, I've known some of these people for 20 years, or my team has, has invested in some of their firms in the past through institutional capacities. But we're also moving into a very new era where looking at retail capital, and I probably use retail a little bit loosely because I don't mean the mom in Nebraska that has 100,000 that wants to put in 5,000, but generally speaking, family offices, there's just much more amenability by these managers to want to access that if they can do it without friction. And so that's allowed us to get into some really top flight managers over the last year. And in the first seven months, I think we've had close to 180 million put through the system through our allocate platform into some of these names. I would imagine that getting access, given your history and your team's history, has been maybe a little bit easier than the other side of the transaction, which is getting investors to put money forth? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we've been lucky to form some of these relationships for a long time. We still have to do a lot of work. We need to be a durable, long-term investor. We need to provide some level of inherent value to these GPs, and we have to make their life easy in terms of their capital formation. But from a supply side, we've been lucky. I think that's our asymmetric advantage. The demand side is always something that investment platforms look at. You effectively have the supply side and the demand side, and you need to build both. We've focused a lot on the independent wealth advisory community, which is looking at alternatives as a big piece of their own growth in terms of offering something that's not only differentiated, but also appeals to this next era of investor where you are seeing a lot of Gen 1 wealth transition to Gen 2. In fact, we're amidst one of the largest asset transfers in the history of the world. And if you look at trillions of dollars is going to be Gen 1 to Gen 2 or Gen 2 to Gen 3. And most of the people that are taking over the money actually grew up in a digital world and understand that so much value creation happens in these private markets, but we're still early in the path. And ultimately, we've had some great partners on the advisory side. So advisor firms that are managing anywhere between two and 30 billion and typically have clients that are qualified purchasers that have five to $10 million in investable wealth. How are you helping these advisors set expectations? Because as you mentioned, it could be five, seven, 10 years, maybe even longer sometimes to see liquidity event. I mean, I know we saw these stories for the past few years of these companies that IPO and people making money, but people don't realize how long it took to get to that point. If you're investing in early stage companies, it could be years and years before you see enough access to make sense. And especially if the current downturn lasts a while, it could push things out a little. So how do you go about setting those expectations for illiquidity and the way that it works in terms of the timing and the IRR and all that stuff, which some regular 60-40 portfolio investors aren't used to dealing with. The sacrifice that you make of investing in venture is liquidity versus return. That's really your trade-off. Now, if you can get into the top quartile names, you're still looking at an overall illiquidity profile that's five to seven years before you see your first dollar back. Now, there is a drawdown period. So we spend a lot of time educating people that, hey, if you commit a million dollars, you're not wiring a million dollars the next day. Typically, that's called over a four to six year period. And usually around year six is when you start to see a harvest period for some of these funds where some of the initial returns. So the average DPI or distributions to paid in capital typically start year six and seven. 
And again, it's not a good asset category for somebody that puts liquidity above everything else. If your number one premium is liquidity, you're better off investing in the public markets, maybe credit funds, real estate, things that throw off cash flow versus venture. But if you look at, again, top tier venture, the returns that people historically have gotten have been north of 25%. Let's talk about exactly what this looks like. So wealth managers or family offices or whoever serve clients that might have some appetite for this sort of risk and understand the illiquidity. They get the deal. Okay. How do you actually work with the advisor to come up with a strategy? Are you putting them into SPVs? Are they individual funds? Are you diversifying for them? It seems to me that there's probably a big education gap that needs to go up front. So walk us through how all of that works. When we do engage with an advisor, a lot of what we do up front is really understanding their client base. We talk a lot about just the venture asset category. As you imagine, venture is very idiosyncratic. It doesn't behave like other asset classes. So a lot of what we have to do in the beginning is just straight education, which we enjoy doing because we do think that the advisor should know what kind of assets they're obviously putting into their platform for their underlying clients. Once we go through that, we offer a series of products. So there's three type of products that we offer. One is a single fund feeder where an advisor can look at our menu of items and say, this is an interesting deal for us and our clients. We will underwrite it. And then their clients would go into an aggregated feeder vehicle where instead of that $10 million minimum, the check sizes in many cases are as low as 100,000. So we create the vehicle. We do all of the administration for that vehicle. We're making a single underlying LP commitment into the fund of choice. The second is some people don't want to pick and choose individual funds and actually like the diversity of multiple funds. So we create a annual multiple fund product that ultimately allows people to get a diversified mix of venture capital funds, maybe for that vintage, maybe it's around a theme. And then the final is there are some people that want direct deal access into companies. In those cases, we create SPVs for investments that go into a direct deal. So it could be a Series C company, a Series D company, typically more mature companies. Again, everything we do has to first be approved by our investment committee, which is four people, three people that came from places like Hamilton Lane, MetLife, ran institutional portfolios before. But those are the different ways from a product standpoint that our wealth advisors work with us. And on top of that, we have technology that digitizes things like reporting, subscription documents, KYC, AML, and then ultimately integrates with some of the custodians. So when an advisor reaches out to you, are they getting a dedicated salesperson? Who is their first point of contact? They always get a point of contact. So it's we have a full team on the relationship side that deals with all of our enterprise clients. So a wealth advisor, it's not just click on to a website, look at a deal, and then you don't hear from everybody. They have access to our diligence team. They have access to our sales team, our relationship teams, our ops team, because we do believe that these are enterprise relationships that require a lot of handholding. And also, we do a lot in terms of that ongoing education, pipeline sharing, just to make sure that the advisor is put in a position to succeed in a market which right now is pretty choppy and in an asset class they may not be as familiar with. My biggest takeaway from working with these funds early in my career was 
there's a lot more operational heavy lifting involved. You mentioned that it could be six years of that workup period to get invested and you have capital calls. So how do you build a plan with an advisor to say, listen, we're going from 0% in venture to now our client wants to be at 2% or 5% or 10%, whatever it is, to build up to that space. How do you build a plan? Obviously, every advisor is going to be different, but do you say, listen, we want to put, if you're going to build up to a 5% position, we want to put 1% in each year from now for the next five years. How do you build that run-up period? Because you don't want to put it all in at the same time where you could have a poor vintage year and then you're kind of screwed. So how do you handle the portfolio management side of things on this? It's such a great question. And I've been through this with so many families over the years. And my own family office actually went through the same exercise. And what you're really describing is vintage year diversification is critical. And we've seen that. If you put all your eggs in the basket in 2021, in funds that deployed all their capital in the course of, let's say, 2021, you'd be holding a portfolio with a lot of overpriced assets. So typically speaking, what we have advised people is if you're looking to, let's say, build up to 5% of your entire portfolio in venture, knowing that there's a drawdown period, what you're really looking to do is maybe 1% to 2% a year. And what it allows you to do is two things. Number one, get that cross-vintage diversification. And if you invest over five years, you're really getting diversified over eight or nine years because the funds that you do in year five are going to have two to three-year deployment periods into new companies. So that's one thing. The other thing is, from a cash flow standpoint, ultimately, the best endowments, the best institutions in the world have a venture portfolio that eventually starts to cash flow itself. By year six or seven, you start to see the distributions pay for the new capital calls. And then ultimately, in order to do that, you have to spread your investments over some period of time. So most of our families are investing to their target over a five to six year period. Samir, can you talk about operationally what this looks like? Because I would say the majority of independent advisors are not used to dealing with illiquid assets. Maybe they're not used to dealing with private placements and all the pain in the neck that all those forms could be. How have you streamlined that process to make it so that it's a smooth transition for both the advisor and the client that's never done this before? For the underlying client, you have to make it as less friction as possible. What I've seen with private market investing, and I've invested in a lot of funds, is you get these 25-page PDFs to fill out a subdoc. It takes you an hour to do. And then halfway through, you realize, I don't really want to do this that much. <laughs> and you sort of like abandon the shopping cart. So ultimately, you have to make the subscription process really, really easy. You have to make the process of getting reporting and managing reporting. I don't know if you've ever been through reporting where you're like going on 10 different portals trying to get your K-1. So we basically centralize all of that for the advisor. And then the subscription is fully digital. Michael, you go through a subscription process once. The next time around, whether you're filling it out on behalf of your client, all the information is there, and then all you're doing is hitting a button that says, send a DocuSign to my end client. The end client just needs to hit the DocuSign link, they sign it, and then they're done, or go into the portal itself. So what used to take an hour, we're getting down to an average of about 8 to 10 minutes in terms of subscribing. I see a lot of pros and cons to sort of opening up place like venture to more investors. Because on the one hand, you mentioned there's now 5 billion people online. There's probably a lot more opportunities. So more money flooding into the space probably gives more founders opportunities to start companies that may otherwise not have had that chance before. On the other hand, there's that old saying that like nothing fails quite like success on Wall Street, where you see a space that's done really well, great returns, money floods in, returns 
go lower. You're kind of balancing these things out by adding more people to invest in the space. That could be more competition and maybe those returns come in. How do you see that balance in terms of if there's billions of dollars more going into venture capital, does that essentially lower the return profile and having more people come into the space and get access, does that do the same thing? So there's a number of questions baked in there. The final question of do more people then imbue these funds to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and does that then present a return issue? So usually what it will happen is instead of the funds getting bigger just because you have the retail category coming in, is more of a function of it's just a more diversified LP base. When these funds are raising, their institutional investors are typically saying, we want a hard cap of X. We don't want you to keep on growing just because you can raise capital. So a fund that goes out with 750 on the target may have a billion dollar hard cap. So regardless, if you let more investors in, that fund manager still can't go above the billion. I think the bigger question is, if so much capital is flooding into the market, what happens to returns? And invariably, with any asset category, when you have too much liquidity pouring in, it's going to have a bad impact on returns, not because of just the math problem, but what it does in terms of valuation and asset prices. So you have a lot of capital going in. If I'm a fund that raises $3 billion versus what I used to raise a billion, I have to put that $3 billion to work. And I'm not doubling the number of portfolio companies. I might still do 25 portfolio companies. So my check size is bigger. And in order not to overly dilute the founder, what I'm going to do is write a bigger valuation. And once you do that time and time again, it's going to have a bad impact on returns. Now, that said, venture capital, it's sort of an amorphous term. I mean, 25 years ago, people thought of venture and I classically defined as investing in early stage companies. Over the last few years, people have thrown things like Insight, Tiger, Co2, D1 as venture. And what they're really doing is investing in the late stages to where the old public markets used to be. So you're really not investing in immature companies. You're investing in highly mature companies that at least the belief was would be two to three years away from an exit event that would be done at a higher price that they were investing in. So we have to define venture a little bit differently than we classically did. But yes, I mean, we always worry about too much capital going into the market. And I think that's what effectively happened last year and parts of 2020. Well, we are definitely on the other side of that right now. And there's no doubt about it that what Ben just mentioned is exactly what happened. You had this absolute insatiable desire on the part of investors to get into these funds and the funds had to fight to get into deals. And so they had to move quicker. They had to offer looser terms. They had to offer less contact, maybe less board seats. And founders had all of the leverage. And very quickly, that shifted. The ground shifted from out from under our feet in a healthy way to the point that deals that were going out maybe at 100, certainly pre-revenue, in some cases pre-product, that's over. That game is absolutely more or less over? I mean, I think it's constantly evolving, but I think it's shifted away from, I will pay any price for anything and 100x multiples in the private markets for SaaS companies. That's done. I mean, if you look at sort of even beginning of the year, the NASDAQ's down, what, 30%. The S&P's down 20.6% or at least ended the first half. That's the worst we've seen in 50 years, right? I think 1970 was the last time it was that bad. So the private markets always take a cue from the public markets, but there's a lack. So what's happening right now is deal activity is slow to a trickle. 
as investors are spending more time with their existing companies, they're trying to find price equilibrium. I don't think all founders have capitulated to the new environment that last year's valuation, even if they made progress, they may have to take a down valuation this year because of the changing market. So the bid ask is still pretty wide. But to your point, yes, net new deals, 2021 is gone. And that's a good thing. And we've seen what is effectively a massive reversion to the mean. We're still up. I mean, what people sometimes forget is if you look at the NASDAQ or QQQ or some of these more tech-heavy type of indexes, we're still up from the pre-pandemic high. And if you look at historic returns of 8 to 10% in the public markets, that's exactly where the NASDAQ is from where we were pre-pandemic to where we are right now. People feel poor because it- There's a yeah, but. The yeah, but is that the NASDAQ is, the Apple, Google, Microsoft, but- Roku, Peloton, Roblox, Zoom, DocuSide, they're all below in a big way. But a lot of people were the big beneficiaries of what happened last year if they were able to get out. So late 2020 and 21, many of those stocks were up 40, 50, 60, 70, 100%, 300% in some cases. And now there's that tax to pay because you had so much liquidity flood the zone. You had so much retail. You saw GameStop. We saw some companies like that that were just pushed up by people speculating. A company declaring bankruptcy was bullish, remember? Yeah. Hertz declared bankruptcy. (laughs) Stock went up 800% or something ludicrous. In this new world, do you and your team change your strategy at all? Do you say, well, we're going to be a little more patient now because things have completely shifted in the last six months, or we're going to invest in more companies or more managers and get more? Do you make that kind of change? Do you pause and try to like reassess, or do you just keep plowing ahead and doing what you're doing? It's hard to just plow ahead and do what you're doing. I think we all have to take inventory and reassess everything. We took a very cautious approach. In fact, we did very little in 2021. One, because we were uncertain about the overall markets. And number two, we were just getting off the ground. So the way we look at it, it's all about asset quality. And it's the price you pay for those assets in terms of generating the best return. So number one, we're always looking for the highest quality managers that have been through cycles that have shown some level of discipline. I don't think many managers showed discipline in 2020 and 21. It was really hard to. But ultimately, when we look at assets that we're putting on the platform, we're always thinking about, can this produce the type of risk-adjusted return necessary for an investor to get acceptable returns relative to their opportunity cost? And so the opportunity cost is more liquid opportunities. It's public equities, it's fixed income, it's bonds, whatever it is. So the bar is definitely higher than it ever has been. And that's for not only us, I think it's institutions as well, and also for the underlying managers. So we probably are leaning a little bit more toward early stage today than maybe some of the growth stage investing. But at the end of the day, these are long tail investments that you're making. I invest in a seed stage venture firm that is going to invest their capital over the next three to four years, which companies aren't going to mature for five to seven years. I can barely predict the next quarter, let alone five to 10 years. So again, it's really a focus on great managers that have shown not only an ability to navigate tough times, but have a clear differentiated advantage. And that's something that's similar to what we did last year. Where do you think we are in the process of correcting the excess that we saw in 2020 and 21. Because for example, 
We definitely have seen it in late stage pre-IPO companies. Klarna just did a massive, massive down round, which guess what? If a firm is down 80%, so are you. You're in the exact same space. So that makes sense. But we haven't really seen it in seed stage. You're still seeing $20 million seed valuations. I'm curious to know if there is a floor or a ceiling to how low that can go just because there's still so much dry powder out there. Do you think that we're going to see seed valuations at $5 million ever again? I am seeing it in certain areas. I mean, it's not ubiquitous. And certainly on the coast, if you go to New York, Silicon Valley, you're not you're still seeing 10 million plus in terms of seed valuation. And there's really two schools of thought there. One is the pure mathematical. If I invest at a 10 million, I put a million in, I only get 10% of the company. And therefore, it's going to affect my overall returns. But venture is such a power law game where you may have one company that goes on to being not only a unicorn, but a decacorn. And whether you paid five or 10 really doesn't matter. Because in effect, at the seed stage, you're always buying low. Just by definition, for the companies that go on and make it, the lowest price that's ever paid is the seed round. I do think we're seeing some change in terms of who's being able to get those 15 to $20 million valuations. It's generally people that have navigated companies before, they've been a repeat founder, or they're in a space that has still a lot of heat around it. But we've seen valuations come down by 20 to 30% in the early stage Series A particular, it always takes a while for the chain to go back to seed. Because when you see the public markets change, well, guess what? The late stage market changes first, then it's the mid stage, then it's the early stage, and seed is the last in that line. There is a lot of dry powder, but that doesn't mean the dry powder is going to be spent as quickly. It was easy to spend dry powder as a fund manager when you knew that even if you went through it in 18 months, you could raise the next fund. Well, today, going back to market and saying, LPs, give me more money when the market is changing, when LPs are going through their own liquidity issues, especially institutions who have the denominator effect. Well, that doesn't happen. I think we'll go back to the two to three year deployment periods, and during which the bar is going to be higher at first, so less deals, and eventually valuations will start to reduce as founders capitulate to the new economy. Samir, to the point of these companies being on a lag, Companies that look like them in the public market, let's just call it the ARC complex. Those stocks peaked in February 2021. By the time 2021 ended, a lot of them were down 40 to 60% already. And only now in June and July are we seeing their equivalent pre-IPO companies marked down. Again, February 21, their competitors peaked. Their liquid competitors peaked. And only in June, I guess you saw some of it May, but really in June was like the, okay, it's real, it's real. That is quite a leg. So I guess it's anybody's guess how long it's going to take to go from public to private, late stage growth, and all the way on down. I mean, it's been historically anywhere between three and 12 months where you start to see the late stage really react. Now it has reacted. If you look, when the Q2 deal data comes out, you're going to see a massive reduction Q3 will be even more because when you look at things like PitchBook or Crunchbase, they usually put the data in the quarter that the deal was announced. So a deal that was done, let's say in January, that was announced in April will show up in the Q2 data, even if the round might have been agreed to in, let's say, Q4 of 2021. So there's always a lag. And remember what happened last year is you had more capital go into funds. The first half of 2021 you had massive funds being raised that needed to be deployed. And people were still unsure of whether the market was really reversing. 
And it wasn't really until it became very clear that inflation was spiraling out of control. It wasn't transitory like the Fed told us it was transitory in, I think it was summer last year when it was like 5%. And the interest rate boogeyman came and people said, okay, we're going to now raise, not only raise rates, but we're going to stop QE and potentially go into QT. But QE didn't even stop until I think the end of Q1. March. Yeah. A lot of this was just the amount of liquidity that was injected. And we also saw more stimulus about a year ago, another $2 trillion in. And so that created even more of a lag. And now, yes, all investors are looking at the market and saying, okay, the Fed is not going to save us. In fact, the Fed has to do whatever it needs to do to stem inflation, which is at a 40-year high. Yes, this could mean that we're going into a technical recession, which I don't think is the worst thing. I don't know why people fear it so much. But ultimately, now that the market has changed and the private markets will go back to what we saw likely in 2009 and 2010, as well as 2001 and 2002. And it's hard to see that reverse given where the macro indicators are. Michael started off this talk by saying Amazon went public way faster back in the day and now companies are taking longer. Because we humans have a tendency to fight the last war, do you think we could see a trend reversal of that because of this? Because you had these private companies that had these huge valuations, and now you're seeing them marked down if they're getting those public market comps. And I'm sure a lot of companies are kicking themselves, employees are kicking themselves, saying, my stock options would have been worth so much more if we would have went public a year ago, and now we can't. So do you think that this will actually change the mindset of some founders that will say, we need to take that money when we can get it and not wait as long because the window might close just like it did in 2022. I think it's tough. I mean, there's still a lot of challenges in terms of going public, not only in terms of how the street will value. I mean, the street has definitely valued companies at different points and times in different ways. So like last couple of years, it was all about growth. Companies that got great growth that high premiums. Now we're back to like a DCF. We're looking at cash flows, path to profitability. And if that continues for the next two to three or four years, the reality is like companies just won't be well received in the public markets. There's also a pretty robust secondary market that's emerged where employees now have these liquidity programs where they can get some money out. And unless things like Sarbanes-Oxley change significantly, which I don't see happening, Many of these companies are going to continue to stay private longer. You mentioned Amazon three years, but that wasn't an anomaly back then. In fact, three to four years was pretty basic and standard. And now the average large company that has really scaled is eight to 12 years. I don't anticipate that. I do think that there's going to be more secondary opportunity for some of these companies so that employees can get some level of liquidity. Big problem right now is a lot of these companies that are in the private markets Klarna, you mentioned last valuation was $45 billion. Now they raised at a $6.5 billion, which is an 85% drop, is looking at the employees who are underwater on their stock and like, what do I do now? And so a lot of these companies are going to have to figure out a way to remedy those situations to keep their employees incentivized. Samir, last question for me. Do we think we've gone too far with democratization of asset classes? Does everything need to be democratized? And I guess venture... I don't think that that's necessarily your mission. You're not looking for $200 checks into venture, but I'd just like to get your thoughts on that. It's a great question. And I go back and forth and my mind vacillates in that people should have the opportunity to invest in things that historically have been off limits and been only available to either really rich people or institutions. And people should be able to make their decisions. But what we found time and time again 
is people are terrible at making decisions, especially when they have a lot of money. And because of that, we've seen things where people have lost a lot of money in areas like crypto because they speculated. People that have lost a lot of money in public market investing and in privates where it's so idiosyncratic, I think we have to be really careful and responsible. Our mission is not to just say, hey, Michael, Ben, go invest in random VC firm. It's to provide people with a responsible way to invest, meaning that if you look at Yale or Harvard, Yale has 23.5% of their target in venture capital, and they've done extraordinarily well. Well, why have they done well? Well, they have full teams that can go out and find great opportunities, diligence these great opportunities. They get into the right opportunities, and they can do it responsibly. I feel like we've probably rotated too far where so many platforms have democratized access, but in a way that's created way too much risk for the underlying investors. And so our view is not democratizing without any guardrails. It's let's create the guardrails by going after the right type of people, educating them, and then bringing the institutional experience to them. So we're not putting them in a situation where they're losing all their capital. Last, last question. I forgot. This is important. Traditionally, venture has been a two and 20 business model. Where does Allocate sit in the stack? How do you all get paid? We charge a small fee at the feeder vehicle that we create. It ranges, but it's sub 1%. And we don't charge any carried interest. So if you look at the historical avenues for people to get access into top tier funds, you go to a fund of funds and that fund of fund manager would typically charge 50 basis points to a percent and another level of promote or carried interest, which would be anywhere from 2.5% to 10%. Our view is that extra layer of carry really degrades returns pretty dramatically. And so we do not charge any type of carried interest. All right. If people want to learn more about how they might work with Allocate, where do we send them? So you can go to our website at www.allocate, A-L-L-O-C-A-T-E dot C-O. Or just email me directly at samir at allocate.co. All right, Samir, thank you very much for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All right, thanks to Samir. Remember, go check out allocate.co for more and send us an email, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.